Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Mr. Tim... Well, excuse me, a, a, a thousand pardons. Lord Timothy Dexter, as he liked to call himself. I'll tell you what, if you haven't heard of this bloke, you haven't heard of Lord Timothy Dexter, you are in luck. Because that is about to change, and I'll tell you what, this is, this, is, this is one for the books. This is a real cracker, this one, an absolute showstopper. This bloke was a total wacker. It was absolutely insane, but somehow bungled his way into... This pattern of huge economic success after doing all this ridiculous stuff like shipping bed warmers to the Caribbean or in coal to Newcastle, in, in a literal sense, not in the, in the sense of the saying, actually literally did that. He spent his entire life trying to break into the rich sort of upper crust of, uh, of late 17th century New England, uh, essentially. And, um, and despite being as rich as a diamond cheesecake, he, he kept getting spurned by all these knobs because he was such a weirdo. Effectively, he was the first ever sort of cashed up bogan the original cashed up bogan if you like with a with a huge fortune and no class whatsoever so let's get to it have a chat about what this bloke's deal was because uh again it's just one big glorious train wreck uh, where the train sort of ended up getting back on the tracks after it finished crashing now and somehow how it had a coal wagon full of gold and jewels the metaphor kind of fell apart there in the end but i'll tell you what strap yourselves in because you're in you're in for a treat this week anyway this fella Timothy Dexter, he's born on the 22nd of January in 1747, just outside of Boston. Now, obviously, this is towards the end of the uh, the British colonial uh, period in this region, and uh, the American Revolution j- just around the corner. His, fa- his family were farm labourers, and uh, like so many others living out on the other side of the Atlantic, they weren't exactly flush with cash. And this only got worse as the tensions and the hostilities between, you know, the, the colonists and the, and the English or the British back at home. Uh, they sort of rise and rise before, you know, the, the excrement hits the proverbial air conditioner in uh, in, uh, in 1775, at the age of 16, young Timothy heads out on his own to seek his fortune. He snags himself a gig as a, a, as a leather worker in Boston. And this ends up working pretty, uh, work, work, it works out pretty well for him, to be honest, because uh, leather products are in high demand and Timothy's masters are, are pretty bloody good at what they do. And so he does pretty bloody well under them, I have to say. In, in 1768, after a five-year apprenticeship, he's ready to go and get, get amongst on his own. But of course, uh, we already know that the tension between the British and the colonists have been very high since 1765. So, you know, through the last, you know, throughout the last sort of three years here, due to all this business with tax and whatever else, we're not really getting into all that today. It's pretty complex, but safe to say, with the the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party on the horizon, Timothy realizes that uh, you know things are going to get very, very complicated and, and pretty, uh, pretty full on there in Boston. And so he decides to leave uh, more or less straight away for, for greener pastures as soon as he's finished his apprenticeship. Anyway, as a result of this, uh, he he buggers off up to Newburyport, which is about 60 kilometres north of Boston. And uh, at the age of 21, he gets his own little business going, making leather gloves and pants and you know and stuff like that. And he does all right for himself too. But uh, his real foot in the door uh, when it comes to getting his pockets filled is when he gets married. And I know things have been you know pretty tame so far. You're probably sitting there thinking, bloody hell, this one's boring. I'll I'll, I'll you know I'll switch this one off, go back to my brother and my, my brother and me. But uh, you know, just hold on one second because this is the point where things start to really well, not even break bad, just just break crazy. Because, you know, so far we've got some bloke, leather worker, moves away from the revolution, whatever. But here, his marriage is our first step down the slippery slope of this bloke's insane genius. So, again, hold on to your butts because uh, let's get to it here with what happened after he got married. Because in New Report, he marries this woman who was recently widowed and, and had previously been married to one of Timothy's mates. 
uh, who was, you know, from leatherworking back in Boston. Her name was Elizabeth Frothingham, and she was as rich as a pavlova. She was not only was her late husband, you know, pretty well to do. She herself had done very, very well through, if you'll believe it, conning people with door-to-door sales. So she's going around trying to sell bloody, you know, vacuum cleaners and 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 magic sprays that uh, you know clean your windows real nice, whatever else. But get this. She's also nearly a decade older than Timothy. So this bloke is a gold digger through and through. No two ways about it. And Newburyport was a very rich town. So now he expects to fit right in now that he's married into all this money. Now, obviously, he does not. This this town is full of politicians, merchants, merchants, full of politicians, merchants, businesses, you know, all sorts of people of the sort, you know, that we, we tend to associate with you know, having a lot of money. And Timothy is effectively an old farmhand who stopped going to school at the age of eight and, and smells like a tannery because he works in one as a leather worker. So he's having a, you know, he's having a hard time, again, breaking into the upper echelons of society here. On top of this, never mind his background and his profession, he's just a straight-up bloody weirdo. This bloke is so weird. He's a loud-mouthed idiot. He's making crude jokes. He's pissing all these posh knobs off by being, you know, just a bit of a loose unit all around. So basically, he's got no mates, but desperately wants to be accepted and respected by all these other blokes, uh, some of who are, at this stage, you know, getting underway with a, a revolution. So very much movers and shakers of the time. And when the revolution actually finally breaks out into a full-on war in 1775, Timothy is that keen to suck up to all of his patriot mates that he does something that's absolutely bonkers. It, it, it's insane, the decision he makes here, and it's ridiculous that he actually gets paid off. You know, it, the, the decision ends up paying off for him. Anyway, what happens is this. The Second Continental Congress, you know, with your blokes like Benny Franklin, Johnny Hancock, Tomo Jefferson later on as well, they set up a new currency for these rebelling 13 colonies, and it is called the Continental Dollar. It's not very well known, and there's a good reason for that. It was an absolute disaster. It was a total disaster from go to woe. No one wants to use it. They don't trust that it's going to retain its worth, which is you know a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because it helps to then devalue the currency. And the other thing is this. These maniacs in Congress, they print this stupid money with the most ridiculous denominations. They're printing notes that are worth one-sixth of a dollar, one third of a dollar or $55, just the most absurd numbers. They're pulling them right out of their bum. Anyway, everyone hates it, won't use it, and it ends up being worth nothing, essentially, because Congress does the old Weimar Republic trick and keeps printing all this stupid money that no one wants to use, trying to you know get it into circulation. And at the end of the war, blokes like John Hancock are, are sort of trying to cash the currency of, of destitute soldiers who were paid with this useless money and therefore, you know, after having done all this fighting and they're being paid this useless currency, they're worth nothing at all. So Hancock, you know, he's doing it to be a good bloke and, and, and try to give these people a hand because obviously they've gone off and, you know, fought for, the, uh, fought for the cause. So what does our mate Timothy do? Obviously, he's trying to suck up to blokes like Hancock. So in order to brown nose with these politician types, he starts to buy every scrap of currency that he can, every continental dollar that he can find, he buys it up, which is obviously... Again, worth nothing. And he is spending real human earth currency, proper French, francs, British pounds, whatever else, buying these useless scraps of paper. He buys an unbelievable quantity of this useless money, which people are obviously thrilled to get rid of to this idiot who's going around, you know, buying it like yesterday's muffins. And he spends a fair whack of his savings on this ludicrous plan, which essentially is a massive gamble. Uh, on the the very unlikely event that this continental dollar will again at some stage be actually worth something, and of course 
wouldn't you know it, once the United States are, are, are set up properly with a new constitution, old mate Alexander Hamilton, he announces that the government will buy back the old continental dollar at 1% of its face value. So despite the fact that these stupid $55 notes are only worth $5.50 now, right, Timothy has got so much of this stupid, useless money that he's able to cash it in for an absolute fortune. Now, obviously, you know, obviously I chuck around a fair bit of hyperbole now and again, but I'm not joking when I say that this bloke went from being, you know, a comfortable tradie with aggressive ideas of social ladder climbing to one of the filthiest, richest blokes around. He was so unbelievably wealthy after this all went down. And from there, he decided that, you know, again, it was his time to shine as, as a mover and shaker in the upper echelons of, of New England society. So what does he do? What's his next stop? What he does now, again, as the first, probably, probably the first ever proper cashed up bogan, he sets himself up in this huge, great mansion on a hill. He spends all of his money, his hard-earned money here, from uh, hiring blokes from all around. The best in the biz, they come in there, you know, their white panel vans, they've got their stained overalls on and their, their bacon sandwiches in the morning to come and make this uh, this chateau, bloody beautiful chateau it was, all the bells and whistles, everything. Everything, you you know, you could possibly uh, pop in there, he did. And uh, even his dunnies, if you believe this, even his dunnies got a good review. Apparently, he spared no expense on the outhouses, which were described as tasteful and and commodious, which is, you know, if you're going to spend money on a part of your house, you may as well spend it on your toilets, you know, sit there on Reddit all day, you may as well make it look nice for yourself. Anyway, I want to tell you more about this house because, you know, before explaining sort of what else he got into here, because it, it, it's funny as hell, check this out. Once the house is built, once the house is finished, Timothy is loving it. He has a stroll around the back patio, he's having, he's looking at the roof, he's just having a great time, but he's having a think about things, he says to himself, I know what this place needs now, it's not finished yet, not quite finished, it needs whopping great pillars all around it with statues on. At least, what, four or five metres tall? That's that's exactly what it's lacking here. You can still see drawings of what this, this mansion looked like with all of its stupid statues all around. With, you know, we've got people on, on, on top of the... Perched on top of the... Well, not people, obviously statues. He didn't have enough money to hire people to pretend to be statues. He just got actual statues made, which weren't actually all that cheap, to be honest. He's got statues of, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, as well as other people, you know, philosophers, generals, a couple of Native American chiefs as well. But best of all, best of all, was the big statue he had made of himself towering above the estate with an inscription that read, I am the first in the East, the first in the West and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. Now, this bloke, he wouldn't know philosophy from bloody butterfly catching, but he's still got all these tickets on himself, this absolute joker. And the thing is, as I said, these statues, they cost so much money. They cost two grand a piece, which was more than he'd spent on his entire mansion. He didn't care about that, however. He didn't care about the money at all because they did exactly what he wanted them to do, these statues. People started paying attention to him because, you know, He's partying away in his house, having a great time. His missus actually gets so sick of it that uh, she moves out to live somewhere else. But Timothy, again, he doesn't care at all because he's having, you know, all people around, bloody, you know, popping the champers, you know, chucking back cold ones, having a great time. And the neighbours and other townspeople are absolutely hating it. But he's, he's partying like a champion, getting the boys around. Women of negotiable affection are in and out. The place is a huge mess. No worries at all. It's just a bacchanalian, you know. It's a, it's a, they're having a great time. They're loving it, loving life. Anyway. 
this house and uh, and Timothy's uh, ghetto Gatsby parties aren't the only thing that he blows his cash on, as I say, however, because the other thing that he does, he goes out and he buys himself a fleet of trading ships, and he goes around drawing about how he's going to become this rich merchant now. Now, some of these other rich blokes who obviously hate this bloke, they you know, he's classless, new money rubbish, they all get together and they say, they say to themselves, you know what? Let's let's do the old Ashton Kutcher on this dickhead. Let's punk him good and proper here. Let's, you know, really, really pants him. So these nasty blokes, they listen to Timothy go on and on about his grand new endeavor and how much money he's going to make. And then one of them, one of them goes up to him and says, listen here, old fella, you know, I've got a, got a little trading tip for you here. You could make out like a bandit with this one. And Timothy turns to him and says, oh, geez, go on, mate, go on. What's the scoop then? And he says, well, old son, I'll tell you, have you heard of the West Indies down there in the Caribbean? I'll tell you what they don't have there. Not one word of a lie. And to be fair, he is telling the truth there. Do you know what they don't have? Bloody warming pans. And Tim goes, you're joking. I don't believe it. I bloody love my warming pans. Stick it in the sheets at night and a cold, frosty night. Keeps you nice and bloody warm, doesn't it? And they go, he said, you know, this bloke who's trying to con him, he says, mate, absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable they don't have them there, eh? Well, I mean, I can't believe it myself. Tell you what, you should export a huge boatload of them down there, sell like hotcakes, they would. Not a worry. Now, obviously... This bloke doesn't mention the fact that the, you know, tropical climate in the Caribbean and how how stupid it would be to try to sell a device that warms up your bed when it's 30 degrees every bloody day of the year. And, and Timmy looks at him and goes, mate, you blokes, all of you blokes, you are the bloody best. I'll tell you what, thanks so much for the tip. Excuse me, because I'm off to the Caribbean. He runs off to the nearest wholesale sailor. He buys himself as many of these pans as he can find. And these other bloke, you know, this bloke goes, bloke, this bloke goes back to his mates and tells them the story. And they are, they're crapping their decks laughing. They can't believe themselves. They think it's so, so funny. And Timothy doesn't muck around after this. After having this trading tip, he buys all these pans, as I say. He buys, oh, sorry, I'll be more specific, 40,000 of them. Let's be clear on how much he, he buys here. 40,000 of these warming pans. And sure enough, he, sails, uh, he sets sail for the West Indies straight away. Now, when he arrives in the sweltering Caribbean heat, he realises that they've had a lend of him here and that he's stuffed up just a little bit because people are laughing at him when he explains that, you know, they can stay nice and warm in their beds with his warming pans. Obviously, no one's interested in that because they're all, you know, sweating all day, every day in, 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 the, in the scorching Caribbean heat. So he knows he's been conned here, but he doesn't let that get to him. He decides, no, no, going to make the best of a, a bad situation here. Instead, he flips the script and manages to come up with a way to get himself out of it. Now, obviously, at this stage, there are a huge number of sugar plantations down there in the West Indies. And so what does he, what does he do with these warming pans? He sells the pans as ladles to all of the plantation owners. Now, I don't know how, but somehow they are as popular as Tarzos in 1997 here. He sells every single one, every single one of the 40,000 that he bought at a huge markup, gouging the prices, uh, you know, when the demand skyrockets. And he returns to the US with his pockets jingling like sleigh bells. He goes back to these blokes who have conned him, you know, with his massive grin on his face, says, Oh, thanks so much for the tip, blokes. Made an absolute fortune, I did. Sold every single last one of those bedpans. You wouldn't believe it. And they are looking there like, what, are you, what is going on? How has this bloke managed to save himself from economic ruin? It's 40,000 bedpans he sold in the Caribbean. Unbelievable, right? Now, he's made himself this pile of cash by exporting bed warmers to the Caribbean. He is now looking for his next venture, is our friend Timothy. Now, I don't know if you've heard the phrase selling coal to Newcastle. It's sort of along the same lines as selling snow to Eskimos or selling sand to Arabs. You know, it's talking about doing something pointless and stupid. But the story goes that some bloke used this phrase in front of Timothy and he's listening to this and he goes, what? Oh, selling coal to Newcastle. That sounds like a good idea. 
you know, they've said it to him as a joke, but he's, he's taken it seriously. And he actually thought that taking coal to Newcastle, one of the main coal-producing regions in Britain, would be a good idea. So once again, he loads up his ships with coal, he sets sail, landing in northern England in t- just in time for, ladies and gentlemen, would you believe it, a miners' strike. So here is this idiot American sailing into one of the biggest coal harbours on the face of the earth, trying to import the stuff, and he lands there right in the middle of when demand is through the roof because none of the miners are working. And once again, he makes a massive fortune in defiance of all the odds after what, you know, again should have been this massive blunder, but no, his pockets are nice and full again as he returns to Massachusetts. In the time after this, his business ventures continue to be ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. He was off to the tropics again before too long, at this time attempting to sell thick winter gloves to the South Sea Islands. I've got no idea what was going through his head when he made this decision, but of course, there's a Portuguese trading ship there on its way to China to buy the, all of these uh, all these mittens, which again salvages a potentially ruinous trip. The next one, he decides to round up this boatload of stray cats, of all things, and ships them off to the West Indies, where they were eagerly snapped up, snapped up by all the farmers and the plantation owners, once again, who used them to deal with rat infestations. He then goes back and buys tens of thousands of Bibles at wholesale wholesale prices, then goes off to the East Indies this time and does a bit of proselytizing, telling people there that, you know, if they didn't have a Bible, they were going to sure, you know, going to hell for sure if they didn't buy all that sort of stuff, and they fly off the proverbial shelves. This guy is the most idiotic King Midas you have ever seen. He's bumping off everything, all of it turning into gold as he accidentally, you know, bangs his head on all of these things that he's doing. And, and, and he's, he cannot stop making money hand over fist. I have to say, though, in fairness to, to you know, Timothy here, in fairness to old, old Lord Dexter, it is fair to say that as time goes on, there was a little bit more method to his madness because he goes from this idiot, you know, idiotic, blundering weirdo to a, a clever and calculating weirdo once he discovers the principles of supply and demand. Because at one stage, you know, he uses, he uses his fortune, again, to make more and more and more money wherever he can. But in one case, he doesn't even set, have to set sail to do it. What he does one time... He goes down to Boston and buys every single scrap of whalebone in the whole city. Now, whalebone at the time, as you probably know, was used in all sorts of you know highly demanded products, uh, corsets and all sorts of stuff there. And this guy, in, in one fell swoop, he, he monopolizes the entire market of whalebone. So with his monopoly secure, he then is able to set his own price for, you know, for, the, for the goods that he's bought, and he offloads the 300 or so tons that he'd bought at a 75% markup. So it's safe to say that this guy was beyond rich. He had more money than he knew what to do with, more dollars than cents, as we'll find out now when we talk about what he did with this fortune. So we've already talked about how Timothy wanted to be mates with all the, you know, the rich and nubby blokes in New England and how he'd, he'd failed at this with his garish mansion and his trashy behaviour and his loud parties. And all, because all the money in the world, it, it didn't help Timothy fit in because all these, you know, wealthy American nobles, quote unquote, obviously noble in the American sense rather than the, in, in the European sense, noble because they've got, a, you know, huge amounts of money. They didn't want anything to do with this rude, uncouth, poorly educated dickhead. Nonetheless, Timothy did everything he could to try to fit in. Because the first thing he does here, 
was force everyone to refer to him as Lord Timothy, despite being, again, the furthest thing from an actual aristocrat, all of his servants and his employees had to use this title with him. He bought an enormous and expensive library, which he never read, didn't even open a single book out of the library. He just had it, you know, in the same way that I think a lot of lawyers have just all those big leather-bound books sitting behind the desk just look impressive. He did that, just an entire library instead of just a couple of shelves. And he started to surround himself with this this entourage of, again, super, super weird people. I'll just give you a quick rundown of some of the people who, who he surrounded himself with here. Number one, a fortune teller who he paid with tea, of all things. A school professor with no formal training who was as mental as Timothy himself, so the two got on like a house on fire. And a really, really, really rubbish poet who came up with classics like this. <clears throat> Lord Dexter is a man of fame. Most celebrated is his name. More precious far than gold that's pure. Lord Dexter shine forever mure. Didn't really even manage to get the rhyme together, but, you know, it, whatever. It, good on you for trying, at least, I suppose. Anyway, none of this worked, however. You know, as, as weird as this bloke was, he wasn't a total idiot. He knew that he didn't have the respect that he craved so much. So what was his response to this? He decided to put it to the test once and for all and find out exactly how much people cared by attending his own funeral. He had a huge big tomb built for himself and then hired a master craftsman to build uh, to build him a coffin of the finest mahogany. He actually liked the coffin, coffin so much that he slept in it for in the weeks leading up to uh, his uh, his funeral here. Uh, you know, again, pretty pretty average day, pretty average decision there for, for, for old Timothy Dexter to make there. Anyway, he organised this big event after telling some of his servants about his plans and instructing them to take care of it. He also tells his wife and kids about what he was going to get up to and they told, and, and, you know, and then tells uh, he tells them that they, they have to cry and be all miserable at the, at the funeral itself. So the news is spread of his death and this massive big event is organised and 3,000 people turn up to this huge big funeral that's being put on. Great big party it is. And Timothy, he's hidden away with a view of the whole affair and he is loving it. All these people turn up to mourn him. Obviously, honestly, they're just there for the open bar at the wake, to be honest. But still, he's loving it. 3,000 people, all of them having a, you know, having a big cry, a big sook about the fact that he's died. That's what he thinks, at least. He's having a, he's having a great time loving it. Even his son and daughter, in fairness, they're, they're, they're playing the part. His son is as pissed as a chook at this stage and isn't even having to pretend to cry. But the, the daughter is, you know, sitting there with her hand, head in her hands, all miserable, that sort of stuff. But then, he spots Elizabeth, his wife, and sees that she's not even close to looking sad or upset. She's, she's smiling, getting on the sauce, having a great time. So what does this ridiculous madman do? He leaps out in full view of the wake, confronts her about not doing you know, a good enough job pretending to be sad, and then behaves like an absolute no-good bastard and, and canes her, unfortunately. So, you know, he kind of really fell apart there at the end. Anyway, after that, he joins the party like nothing even happened, again with his big, famous, stupid, idiotic grin all over his face and, uh, and parties on like, uh, like there's no tomorrow. So this bloke really did push the envelope when it came to, you know, what you can get away with just you know, economically, certainly, but just in the general realm of, of, of being a, 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 a normal human being. But, uh, you know, as he got on in years, uh, he realised that he had to do something to secure his legacy here. He realised he had to do something to, you know, make sure that his name was not lost in the annals of history. So at the age of 50, he decided to write his memoirs. And he did so, titling them, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones or Plain Truth in a Homespun Dress. And the entire thing is the most baffling stream of consciousness rubbish you will ever see. On top of this, 
He couldn't spell, and he didn't even bother with punctuation. The book itself is almost 9,000 words long and doesn't contain a single punctuation mark. Here is its opening, well, not sentence, because, again, that would be the whole book. There is no punctuation. But here is the first bit of it, I guess, until I get bored of reading it. I'm the first lord in the United States of A. Merikari, now of Newburyport. It is the voice of the Piopel, and I can't help it, and so let it go. Now, as I must be a lord, there will follow many more lords pretty sound, for it don't hurt a cat, nor the mouse, nor the sun, nor the water, nor the ear. Then go on all easy now, bonds broken, all is well, all in love now. I be jine to lay the cornerstone and the keystone with grat. He would hand this masterpiece, this literary masterpiece out to anyone who would take it. And lots of people did because it was just so bloody funny to read. So many people took it, in fact, that he ran out of copies and paid for a second edition and it got even better. Because his publisher suggested that he, at this time, you know, maybe bend to these, you know, tasteless critics who were gently suggesting that perhaps he should include punctuation. And obviously, you know, all the flack that he'd cop for being rather sparing with his full stops and commas finally got to him because uh, his response in the second edition was an absolute classic. It was, oh, geez, it was so, so good. Do you know what he did? In the second edition, he included, included this little addendum. He, he firstly included an entire page covered with different punctuation marks. You've got your full stops, you've got your commas, your semicolons, your, your parentheses, all sorts of stuff, just a mixed up big page of, of, of all these different punctuation marks. And then a little bit of extra text. Founder Mr. Printer, the knowing ones complain of my book. The fust edition had no stops. I put in enough here and they may peeper and salt it as they please. Basically, here's the punctuation. You bloody put it in the book if you care so much about it, mate. There is so much more about this book that I want to share, but we would be here all day. I think the best comparison is that this book was essentially a long, rambling, drunken Facebook post from the sort of person you know who might defend smoking while pregnant by saying, my mum did it and I turned out fine. Anyway, Lord Timothy Dexter, he lived out the rest of his life in comfort. A little too much comfort, really, boozing and eating and gambling, until he died on the 26th of October in 1806 at the age of 59. Now, as, as an insult to his grand objectives to rise above his station, the local government actually refused to let his remains be interred in the great big tomb that he'd built for himself, uh, you know, during the fake funeral, as it was unsanitary. And so instead, he was buried in a little cemetery nearby called Old Hill Burying Ground, which you can still visit today. But what's interesting about this story, I think, is that Timothy went from being a crass, poorly educated farmhand to a crass, poorly educated schoolionaire and didn't gain an ounce of class from go to woe. It sounds like he was a bit of a prick, to be honest, but he was a funny prick, and that definitely counts for something. And beyond everything else, despite his desperate and and covetous behaviour, he still lived by his own terms as a total weirdo. So good on him. that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Timothy Dexter, the wacko entrepreneur. And I tell you what, I hope you enjoy it. If you didn't enjoy it, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do to impress you. I, I, yeah, I'm really at my wits end. Anyway, I thought it was a cracker. I hope you got something out of it. 
Usual boring uh, announcements to close out the show. Uh, Halfasthistory.net is the podcast website. It's there you can find links to the Twitter page at History without an O. Wouldn't fit. Very annoying. And you can send me an email, uh, at gmail.com or use the contact form is, is usually better as well. I can send out stickers to you if you send me your address. Uh, all you need to do there, again, send through your address. I'll send out the, those stickers free of charge or yours. Maybe I'll chuck something else in there for you as well. No worries at all. And if you, again, have you got any ideas or any feedback? Uh, it's certainly been great. I, I appreciate people feeding back. Let me know when, you know, a link doesn't work or something on the website's a bit skew. If I do appreciate all the feedback, thank you so much for getting in touch. I should, be, I, I really should get, a, get better at uh, at replying to those emails. Uh, you know, I'll, I don't know. I can make a promise to do it. Probably won't happen, but I do appreciate all the same. I do read every single email that comes through and I do appreciate all of them, even the ones that are a little bit nasty because, you know, again, you can't have the good without the bad. That is that, my friends. Going to close things out again with a, a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Ultra Sue. This is not just a regular Sue here. This is an Ultra Sue. You know, not quite as good as a Master Sue, but definitely better than a Great Sue here. Ultra Sue wants to know, you know, we talked a lot about uh, about transporting goods all around the world and, and, and the economy of the 18th century with uh, with ships sailing here and there and transporting goods everywhere. So Ultrasu wants to know, why did the English get their tea in East India when there's a Tesco just down the road? <laughs>